If this is your first time joining us, last week we began uh, somewhat of a mini-series for Easter. Uh, So for this month, uh, we're going to be hitting five snapshots in the Gospel of John. This is the second one. Just some background information for the book of John. The Gospel according to John is believed to be, have written by the Apostle John. Uh, this is one of the men uh, from Jesus' inner circle of 12 disciples. Historically, it's understood that this man, John, is also the one who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as well as Revelation. It is believed uh, that this was one of the last, or it is the last Gospel account that we have. Scholars have dated this gospel to be written uh, between the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and the end of John's life, which is 100 AD. And it is for that reason that it's the last gospel that uh, it accounts for the fact that John doesn't intend to give an exhaustive account of Jesus' life and ministry. Rather, what he does is he emphasizes and selects specific signs that would give intellectual as well as spiritual certainty that Jesus is the Son of God. Unique to John, in John chapter 20, is a clear statement of purpose. John is also referred to as the evangelist because of this purpose. He writes in John 20, 31, the purpose of this book is, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ Jesus, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. We're going to talk about that life. Life in his name. Now let's talk about this passage that we're studying this morning in John 12. Somewhat unique to this particular passage that we're studying this morning is that this is one of the few incidents in Jesus' life, in his ministry, that we see in all of the gospel accounts, all four of them. What is regarded as Jesus' triumphant entry in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other gospel accounts, seems to be somewhat unfitting for John's narrative. The way that he captures it, his emphasis here seems to be focused more on the misunderstood responses of the people as he enters in Jerusalem for the Passover just days before he's nailed to the cross. Another one of John's major themes is that Jesus continues to reveal man's understanding of who he is. We're about to witness that there truly are many misunderstandings about Jesus in this passage. And what's strange is a lot of those misunderstandings are still common today where we live. You see, we're, we live in a time where many people accept a version of Jesus that will fit their lifestyle. And we see this displayed in multiple ways. And I'm going to try to say this without kind of laughing, Um, but we see this in movies too. Uh, We see this displayed uh, during the Christmas season uh, where I'll accept the baby version of Jesus, but not grown-up Jesus, because grown-up Jesus was just too confrontational. I want accepting Jesus, you know, the the one that hang out with the, the rejects of society, because I don't want to seem judgmental or offensive to others, or... I want miracle Jesus. Better yet, I want prosperity Jesus because that's the kind of power I need. That's the kind of miracle I need in my bank account. I want trendy Jesus. I don't want traditional Jesus. That doesn't jive well with modern culture. Some of my friends buy into this one, this version of Jesus. I want justice Jesus. 
who will restore order to the societal underdogs and bring judgment on their oppressors. And yet, with every different version of Jesus we see in today's world, we get farther and farther and farther away from who Jesus really is, according to Scripture, how he revealed himself. And what's worse is not just who he is, but we also get this incorrect understanding. If we don't come to the word, how we respond to him rightly. So this morning in the text, we're going to look at three misunderstandings of the gospel found in this one passage. Here in John 12, Jesus explains the gospel message to a large, diverse group of people just days before he's nailed to the cross. The title of the sermon this morning is Respond to the Gospel. My expectation this morning for us is that you will recognize that when you truly understand Jesus, who he is, what he's done, you will understand that there is only one right way to respond to his gospel message. So please follow along with me as I read John 12, Verse 12 begins saying, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm leaves and went out to meet him, crying aloud, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This morning, I'm going to have three exhortations, and this is the first exhortation. This morning, seek Jesus and his mission scripturally. Seek Jesus and his mission scripturally because those who misunderstand who Jesus is misunderstand his mission. Misunderstand his mission. You know, it's, it's a great tragedy when one misunderstands who Jesus is because they usually respond to him based on their misperception of who he is. I'm going to use this example that was used by another preacher uh, at at the church that we came from, uh, also with an article statement. And this is a man by the name of Mohandas Gandhi, later to be called the Mahatma Gandhi. He was born in the the mid-19th century, and he was known for his nonviolent social activism uh, and his spiritualism uh, that derived from his ever-evolving Hindu-based faith. And this is what one of the articles says about Gandhi. While Gandhi was practicing Hindu, Christianity intrigued him. In his reading of the Gospels, like the Gospel that we're reading today, 
Gandhi was impressed by Jesus, whom Christians worshipped and followed. He wanted to know more about this Jesus that Christians referred to as the Christ, as the Messiah. So one Sunday morning, Gandhi decided that he would visit one of the Christian churches in Calcutta. Upon seeking entrance to the church sanctuary, he was stopped at the door by the ushers. Listen to this. He was told he was not welcome, nor would he be permitted to attend this particular church as he did not belong. Because of the rejection, the Mahatma turned his back on Christianity. With this act, Gandhi rejected the Christian faith, never again to consider the claims of Christ. He was turned off by their plain rejection of him. It was due to this experience that Gandhi later declared, I'd be a Christian if it were not for the Christians. Years later, when a Christian missionary asked Gandhi what he knew about Jesus, he explained that he held Jesus in high regard as a moral teacher and even a man that had a great following. But because of Gandhi's unfortunate experience with an unwelcoming church, and because of his resolve to never again consider Christ's claims about himself, he did not understand who Jesus is. His conclusion about Jesus and his mission was that Jesus' death remained a senseless waste. Those who misunderstand who Jesus is no matter how good they are perceived by the world, misunderstand his mission. Let's look at that text again, and it's gonna be on the screen. In verses 12 through 22, John speaks of three different groups of people who respond to Jesus based on their misunderstanding of who he is. And the the first group, we're actually gonna see three sections uh, of this group, uh, and it's the crowd, it's identified as the crowd. We're gonna talk about two of these different types of crowds that we see in the text. One of the crowds is identified as those who present when Jesus miraculously raised Lazarus from the dead. The other crowd, in verses nine and 12, uh, they're referred to as the large crowd. They did not see the miracle themselves, but they had heard about Jesus' miraculous powers. They were simply travelers who were gathering in Jerusalem for the feast. Just to give a little bit of background information, Josephus, a Jewish historian, gives us somewhat of a number figure. He records the number of people who made these pilgrimages around this time period. And he says it's close to 2.7 million people. And that wasn't even counting the foreigners and the outsiders, the God-fearers that were a part of this group. This was a very large group. They were traveling, and as they were traveling, word got out that Jesus was nearby. And so a large crowd of people made their way to the home of Mary and Martha. The text says that not on account of just seeing Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. You see, what these crowds held in common was that they were both impressed by Jesus' miracles rather than Jesus' message. Look again at verse 13. John explains that they took palm branches and went out to meet Jesus, and they cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. This was a kingly welcome. 
See, the waving of palm branches was this national symbol that pointed to roughly two centuries earlier to the victory of Simon and Judas Maccabeus. And for those of you that are familiar with Hanukkah and the celebration of Hanukkah, Simon and Judas Maccabeus were the ones who heroically drove out their enemies uh, and, and out of Jerusalem and restored the nation's worship at the temple. They were praised as heroes. So the Jewish people celebrated this national victory with music and the waving of palm branches. Therefore, the palm branch from this time period became the Jewish symbol of triumph as well as military victory. Here in the text, as they waved these palm branches, they cried, Hosanna. What what does that mean? (laughs) Hosanna, deriving from the Hebrew word, literally translates, give salvation now. Why were they so impressed? Why did they wave their palm branches? Why did they cry out the way that they did? Don't get this wrong. Don't misunderstand this. This was not a warm welcome. This was not a red carpet event for Jesus. This was a resounding plea of relief that their national liberator had finally arrived. That's how they perceived Jesus. Both the palm waving their Hosanna cry indicate that they have found the one, they have finally found the one who will bring them salvation from their oppressors. I was telling some of our college students, this is why I find it a little strange and ironic uh, that some churches that don't do what Matt just did and explain that there's actually an irony to waving palm branches. That's why I'm thankful that we went over that. Is I find it a little ironic and strange that people that don't know this, when they wave their palm branches, that they're actually pointing back to this terrible misunderstanding of who Jesus is. Instead of seeing Jesus as their savior who has come to bring them salvation from the enemy, they were pronouncing a blessing on Jesus as the national hero who bring them salvation through liberating them politically from their Roman oppressors and restoring the nation of Israel to become chief of the empire. In short, they believed and they worshiped Jesus because he was their savior in a military sense, even a political sense, but not in a divine sense. Yes, they were rejoicing. Yes, they did recognize Jesus as their king. And yet this same crowd that rejoices with palm branches and cries Hosanna is the same crowd that will scream for his blood just a few days later because he didn't give them what they truly wanted. Sadly, this misguided praise kind of in history will always be identified with this group of people. Look how Jesus responds to their misunderstood worship in verse 14. The crowd expected Jesus, the triumphant warrior, or their victorious king, to arrive in town riding a mighty war horse. (laughs) But instead, knowing what was about to take place, Jesus instructed his disciples, we see this in the Luke account, to bring a young donkey that had never been ridden. One scholar explains, even more ironic 
that these donkeys were not like the ones that we see raised here and bred here in the U.S. They are much smaller, so much to the point where he says that they require grown men to bend their knees as they rise so their feet don't hit the ground. Imagine, they're waiting for their mighty, victorious king to come riding on this stallion, a mighty stallion, and here Jesus is coming in into town. Why does Jesus respond to their misunderstood worship in this way? Why a young donkey? Jesus was intentionally identifying with the Messianic prophecy that we find and we read earlier in Zechariah 9, 9 to 10, that Jesus is the reason that they can fear not because he is the gentle king that comes to bring peace, not through war, but through his meekness and humility. I love how one scholar comments on this verse, and he says, by riding a donkey colt, Jesus subtly informed them that he was the king God had appointed, not the king that they had conjured up in their expectations. Let's talk about these other two groups. So we have the crowd, but we also have this second group in this section that are known as the disciples in verse 16. It seems that John adds a comment to this narrative Verse 16 reveals that even the disciples misunderstood. John explains that even Jesus' disciples misunderstood the mission of Jesus because they misunderstood who he is. It is possible that they understood this event the same way the crowds view him, that Jesus was the man God had sent to restore the nation of Israel. And now he is finally getting his due, the recognition, the worship he deserves. They finally get it. But this, again, was not his mission. This is not who Jesus is. And very quickly, we're going to hit the third group. The third group we see in the section of the Pharisees in verse 19. And unlike the other two groups who see Jesus with hopeful eyes, this group sees Jesus as a threat to their position, their comfort, their power, their control. See, the Pharisees were considered the scribes, the the leaders, the teachers of the law of Moses. How did they get this title? They were well-versed in interpreting Scripture. It was their knowledge that gave them power and their position. They earned their titles. They could only accept Jesus on their own terms, which ultimately leads to their rejection of Jesus. You see, with each of these three groups of people, we see a range of responses that all fall short. Miracle worship, ignorance, casual appreciation, intolerance, rejection, all of these responses are just wrong. They're all wrong. Why? Because each of these responses are based on misunderstandings of who Jesus really is and what he came to do. Church, don't allow yourself to choose the best version of Jesus that suits your circumstance. Don't give in to false expectations of these three groups. Instead, I want to challenge you to seek Jesus through the reading of of the Word of God, through the Bible. And only then will you rightly understand His mission. If this is your first time visiting, with us, 
If you have not yet placed your faith in Christ, I wanna urge you to seek Jesus based on what the scriptures say about him, not simply on what others may tell you about him or even based on terrible experiences that you've had before with other Christians. Seek Jesus and his mission scripturally. Only when you rightly understand who Jesus is would you be able to understand his mission rightly. John continues in verse 20, follow along with me, when it says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. My second exhortation this morning is serve Jesus wholeheartedly. Serve Jesus wholeheartedly. And it's because those who misunderstand his message, they misunderstand true living. We'll come back to verses 20 through 22 in the last point, but for now, I want to focus your attention on verses 23 through 26, where we see Jesus' response to these Gentiles who wished to see him. Jesus confirms the significance of this moment with another truly, truly statement, and it's followed by an agricultural parable, as well as this invitation, this call to follow him. The point of the parable was this, and we talked about this on Wednesday night. Like a harvest that is brought forth through the dying of seeds, Jesus must die in order that others may live. Jesus' death will, not might, it will generate a great harvest. It will bear much fruit. It will produce eternal life that others may live. And then Jesus rapidly transition, transitions into this like short maxim that connects Jesus' redemptive sacrifice with his followers' self-sacrifice. Jesus explains this paradox of the Christian life, that those who seek Jesus, those who follow him, they will deny themselves. Jesus, or John uses what's known as absolute contrast. It's where we see the hate life part and love life part. This is a common thing that we see in Jewish reasoning in order to explain the difference between self-serving life and a self-giving life. That those who love their life equal to or above Jesus, those who choose to serve themselves, those who choose to serve their desires, they will not have eternal life. But those who love Jesus those who choose to serve Jesus with following his desire, 
following him, they will experience true living, eternal life in Christ. You know, I have a large group of friends who seem to misunderstand true living. What makes this strange is that many of them say that they're Christians. See, they're within that group that tends to irritate me a little bit. They're they're within this group of people uh, who take a picture of their food and then uh, maybe it's a sunset picture or maybe it's a picture of their favorite car or something like that. And they post it on social media with trite descriptions like abundant life. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Blessed with the best. What irritates me so much about that is it, it really misconstrues the message of the gospel, what true living is supposed to be. This is not true living. Jesus did not die on the cross in order for you to enjoy your expensive dessert and call that abundant life. You see, this passage is a great reminder that true living, it's costly. You see, Jesus was not only preparing his disciples for his approaching death, but he was teaching them what it meant to follow him in their approaching death. For those of you that have been with us during our Acts series from January um, on to March-ish, you will remember how true living, truly following Christ is costly. Again, Another thing that we talked about on Wednesday night as we looked back in relation to what happens a month later from this text. In Acts 4, Peter and John were arrested and tried. Acts 5, the apostles were arrested, jailed, arrested again, tried, and threatened. Acts 6 and 7, the leaders of the law set up false witnesses against a man named Stephen. He was tried and then cast out of the city and killed by the throwing of stones. The list goes on and on. Church tradition even tells us that Matthew was killed by the sword. Mark died after he was dragged through the streets of Alexandria. Luke hung on a large olive tree in Greece. John, the author of this gospel account, suffered from being treated with a cauldron filled with boiling oil, and then later banished on an island in his final days. James the Less, beheaded in Jerusalem. Peter died in Rome as he was crucified upside down. James, after he was thrown from a high peak and found alive, was bludgeoned to death by clubs. Philip, hanged. Bartholomew, scourged and beaten to death. Andrew hung upon a cross and found preaching to his persecutors at the top of his voice until death. Thomas impaled with a lance. Matthias, Barnabas, beaten with stones and later beheaded. Paul, beheaded in Rome. And as one pastor writes, on and on and on it goes. Church, may we learn to follow Paul's example as he confesses, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I love how Spurgeon comments on this. He says, to live for the Lord is to live indeed. All else is mere existing. 
Christian, is that you this morning? Are you merely existing? Or are you truly living? To all the Christians here this morning, failing Christian, faithful Christian, I want to challenge you to serve Jesus wholeheartedly. And I've said this before, but it's worth mentioning again. If you have truly been saved by the blood of Christ, you have eternal life now. My question is, what are you doing with it? For these disciples, Jesus was explained to them that the cost of following him means that they too will follow him in his death, that they too will follow him in his persecution. This is the great joy that death cannot silence. Joy in service to Christ is the only joy that lasts. It is Jesus' self-giving that enables his followers to become self-giving. Now, please understand, self-giving doesn't always mean that every Christian will face martyrdom in the same way that these disciples faced martyrdom or even persecution. Our self-giving service will also apply to how we serve our other brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, God doesn't need our service, but he uses our service for his glory. Or, as Luther famously wrote, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. How do we do this? How do we act upon this? One pastor explains it this way. He says, here is how you find life. Die to yourself. Die to little dreams. Die to empty routines. Die to playing life safe. Die to protecting your reputation. Die to selfish, small living. Die to stingy self-centeredness. Die to yourself. Only then can you live, and only then will you have a life that brings real Christ-like joy. Brothers and sisters in Christ, serve Jesus wholeheartedly. And visitors, you're not off the hook. (laughs) If you've never placed your faith in Christ, I want to also urge you to serve Jesus wholeheartedly. And how, how do you do this? In verse 26, Jesus explains, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. You see, serving Jesus begins with a commitment to follow him. I'm not saying Jesus needs you to start serving in the church ministry programs. I'm not saying that Jesus needs you to start earning your way to heaven by accumulating more good deeds to outweigh your bad deeds. And I'm definitely not saying that Jesus needs your actionable service. He wouldn't be God if he had need. But again, for those of you who have never placed your faith in Jesus, I want to make this point very clear. No amount of serving, no amount of good deeds will ever, ever make you a follower of Christ. Performing a service and acting upon good deeds, again, will never make you a Christian. Jeremiah and Isaiah both explain it in this way. They, they explain the human heart. The condition of the human heart is that we're all sinners. And so sinners trying to attempt to earn a good standing with God through service is like offering God a polluted garment. Or as another translation says, filthy rags. 
instead of attempting to offer God your good deeds, your good thoughts, your good intentions, I am urging you to offer God your life. Repent by turning away from your sin. Turn to Christ who offers new life to all those who believe in him. Only then can you receive the great joy of being where Jesus is, honored by the Father. Weary wanderer, serve Jesus wholeheartedly. Continue to follow along with me in this passage. John continues in verse 27 with Jesus saying, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said, it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what, by what death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. My final exhortation this morning is spread the gospel urgently. Spread the gospel urgently because those who misunderstand his mission misunderstand the power of the gospel. In verses 27 and 28, if you'll follow along with me in the text, it seems that Jesus reacts in this unusual way to his mission. We see that Jesus' soul was troubled. And this sentence in the original language is very difficult to follow. It leads to many different interpretations. So one way that this section has been interpreted, one of the popular interpretations of this passage, is that Jesus is at odds with himself. It's with this understanding that Jesus only now realizes the gravity of his coming death, and so he is speaking to himself, at war with himself, and then praying to the Father. But as I was talking with Matt and I was talking with Christopher on Wednesday, uh, it's a very neat other interpretation that I tend to favor now. <laughs> I favor this alternate interpretation that is better understood that this is a continuation of Jesus' teaching to his disciples. And it's this teaching explaining what it means to follow Jesus. And sadly, many miss this interpretation because of this tragic break and the subheading in between verses 26 and 27. If we read it and let it flow between 26 and 27, just going down, 
We see this understanding where Jesus' lesson that's about serving him, following him, being with him, it includes the understanding that their souls will also face trouble, just as his soul has been troubled. This is the understanding that Jesus didn't all of a sudden realize the horror of his coming death, but instead chose this opportunity now to share with them, as Matt has said before, kind of pulling back the curtain, that this is the reality that he has been facing all along. This is the same reality that they will face as his followers. And to some degree, this is the reality that all his followers will face. What should their response be then to this? How should Christ's followers respond to true living in Christ? Jesus teaches them through his example. He says, for this purpose, I have come, Father, glorify your name. That's what our response should be. In verses 29 and 30, we see the multitude continue to misunderstand his mission. Jesus explains that what they just heard was for their sake and not his. And he continues by explaining that this hour is the judgment of the world, where the evil one, the ruler of this world, will be conquered. He explains to them by what kind of death he was going to die, by explaining that he was going to be lifted up from the earth. By explaining this, he was pointing them back to familiar passages, well-worn text that they would be familiar with. From Numbers 21 with the bronze serpent that God had instructed his people, put this bronze serpent on, this pole, and lift it up. And the people that were affected by the fiery serpents, when they look in faith to this bronze serpent on a pole, that they will be healed to another passage like Isaiah 11, one of my favorite passages of Scripture that talks about that Jesus is the banner that is going to be raised up and have this centripetal force from every area of the world, all four corners of the world, to flow up in worship to Him. Or even Isaiah 52 and 53, the text that was read last week, and this was all supposed to point to His nail-pierced body that would be lifted up on a cross, and that is how he will draw all people to himself. And despite the people's continual misunderstanding, Jesus, again in love, offers them this invitation, this call to respond. He invites them to come to him, to believe in him, the light of the world, that they too may become sons of light. One very important question that should be asked is, who is this invitation for? Look at verse 32. Jesus seems to answer this question when he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all, all people to myself. Understand that this all is very important. This invitation for all who believe in Jesus is something that needs to be responded to. I also want to direct your attention to verses 20 through 22. We see the misunderstanding as we look back in the text. We see this misunderstanding of the outsiders to his mission. Verse 20 seems to show us that amongst this large crowd, there were Greeks, Gentiles, non-Jewish people who were casual admirers of the Jewish faith. They often traveled during these pilgrimage feasts. 
it would seem that they were uncertain if Jesus and or his followers would fully accept them since they were not Jewish. Therefore, instead of going directly to Jesus, they go to Philip, who is Jewish, but he has a Greek name, so maybe he'll accept us. It seems that Philip, as he's talking with Andrew, shares his hesitation. He doesn't know if Jesus' message is also for the non-Jew. So Philip and Andrew go to see Jesus to see what he will say. Will Jesus accept these outsiders? Should they, as Jesus' followers, accept these outsiders? Jesus seems to answer their question with this word all in verse 32. This is his invitation to you if you haven't trusted and placed your faith in Christ. The answer to this question again is a resounding yes. Yes, this invitation is for the Jew. Yes, this invitation is for the non-Jew. Yes, this invitation is for those who are far off. And yes, this invitation is for the weak, the undeserving, the lowly, the degenerate, the rejects of society, all the way from the rich class to the poor, the proud, especially the one identified as lost in darkness. This invitation is for all to come to Jesus, who is the light of the world. Jesus' mission was fulfilled in his death on the cross, bringing new life to all who would believe in him. And today, Jesus' mission continues as believers urgently spread this gospel message to the ends of the earth. Christian, don't waste your life waiting for retirement before you begin telling others about the hope we have in Christ. Brothers, sisters, don't become distracted with your nine-to-five career that you overlook gospel opportunities in your own home in your work environments, in your classrooms, even in your neighborhood. God's mission is to reach all peoples for his glory. And that gospel message is powerful. We don't simply try to persuade people when we share the gospel with them as if we're peddling some sort of weak message. No, we proclaim the powerful message and we let it loose. Those who misunderstand his mission misunderstand the power of the gospel. So church family believers, I want to urge you, spread the gospel urgently. We're going to kind of conclude our time here, and I always make a point to make sure that every part of our audiences are are, are being talked to. So this first group that I want to talk to you this morning as we conclude is if you're here this morning and if you have not yet placed your faith in Christ, I want to again challenge you. Seek Jesus and his mission scripturally. Maybe you've seen enough terrible, hypocritical examples of Christians around you. Maybe you found yourself disenchanted by the hypocritical examples of leadership or even self self-professing Christians growing up. Or maybe you've also concluded, just as Gandhi did, I'd be a Christian if it weren't for Christians. Out of love and out of hope, 
I want to urge you to seek what the Bible says about Christ. It is only when you seek Jesus in Scripture will you know who he truly is and what his mission is. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the Son of God who came to die on the cross in order to make believers, sinners, repentant sinners, right before God. Following Jesus, truly seeking him with every fiber of our being is the only proper response to who Jesus is and what he has done. I also want to echo the words of Paul when he said that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. As it is written with Isaiah, my prayer is that you will seek the Lord while you can find him. Call on him while he is near. Just really quickly, this just happened with a 17-year-old upstairs about an hour ago. He realized that he already professed Jesus and he didn't realize it yet. And maybe that's you this morning, that maybe you here this morning have been coming. You're not sure if Christianity is for you and yet you realize, I do have a need in Christ. I wanna challenge you. Let's talk about Jesus in the scripture. Maybe for some of you who have been seeking a different version of Jesus than what is revealed in Scripture, a politicized Jesus, a non-confrontational Jesus, or a prosperity Jesus, on and on and on, I want to urge you, turn away from those imposters, those false misrepresentations, and turn to the Jesus of Scripture. Only when you seek Jesus and his mission scripturally will you be able to serve him wholeheartedly and spread the true gospel urgently. Let's talk to the other audience. For those of you who are Christians, faithful Christians, also failing Christians, if you have been saved by the blood of Christ, I want to urge you to never stop rejoicing in Jesus and what he has done, accomplished on the cross. Never grow weary of seeking Jesus and his mission scripturally. Never grow weary of serving Jesus wholeheartedly. And Christian, for you, I want you to take a moment and reflect. Do you understand his message and do you understand what true living entails? And this one's very important. Does your life truly reflect this understanding? There's a substantial difference between knowing the right answer and living it out. Or are you saved by the blood of Christ, yet most of your week, you're just existing? trying to survive the weak. Believer, Christ did not save you that you could just survive this week. He saved you for so much more than this. What are you doing with the new life that God has given you in Christ? Does your service glorify God or does it glorify yourself? Have you given into the misunderstanding that serving is optional? Christ died on the cross to give us new life, everlasting life, that we may be right in relationship with him. Christian, this is the gospel message that we are to spread urgently. That it is only when we follow him and his gospel 
that we are able to seek him, serve him, and spread the words about him. Visitors and friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, church family, respond to the gospel.